Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 36 of the podcast in which we will look at chapter 14 of Prince Caspian, titled How All Were Very Busy. In the last chapter we saw mostly a setup for this great duel between Peter and Miraz, where Peter, exercising his authority as the high king in command, uh, offers rather than a, a massive battle between two opposing armies, he offers a monomachy, a single combat between two opponents uh, where the victor would take the spoils, as it were. Uh, and so in that last chapter, we saw the setup from Peter and Edmund uh, drafting the proposal and Edmund delivering it to Miraz. But then also this uh, this subterfuge between Sepespian and Glozel, the lords of Miraz, where they uh, plan their own treachery and treason against Miraz. And we looked at how... Um, evil begets evil, that in many ways they are just simply imitating their king in a way that Peter is imitating his. Peter is seeking to rule the way that Aslan does. Uh, Caspian is seeking to rule the way that Aslan desires, that there is a right and good authority that they are uh, moving toward and that they are assuming, um, and that there is a, a wrong authority and a wrong rule that Sepespian and Glozell are grasping after, yet in many ways they are simply imitating their their king. Miraz was a usurper, so it stands to reason that his subjects will become usurpers, uh, that they will become like uh, their king, just like Peter and Caspian will become like Aslan, or that they are meant to. Now in chapter 14, we get the combat itself, uh, and so the field is readied for this duel between Peter and uh, Miraz. They have all of the marshals in place. Uh, and Trumpkin uh, has one of the opening lines, and it's a, a rather mournful and, and melancholy one. He says, I wish Aslan had turned up before it came to this. And Truffle Hunter replies, so do I. Um, and it, it's a wonderful and touching moment from Lewis where we're reminded of the humanity of this scene. It can be very easy to lose yourself into the narrative and just assume that these are all flat characters and some of them represent the good and some of them represent evil and there is this abstract struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. But Lewis is a very careful author to invite us as readers into the humanity of these situations often where we're forced to reckon with uh, the complexity of uh, human emotion, the complexity of fear and anxiety and uh, concern and doubt, these emotions that are very much at play here, um, Lewis is is uh, very mindful of, rem of bringing those back to the surface for us so that we can interact with the story on a deeper level. In fact, it's on that same note that he ends the preceding chapter, chapter 13, uh, where right before Peter goes out, Edmund says to him, brother to brother, he says, I suppose it is all right. I mean, I suppose you can beat him. And Peter says, that's what I'm fighting him to find out. And that's how Lewis leaves us in chapter 13, where it's this beautiful and poignant moment between brothers, where we had Peter as the king writing uh, in this very uh, formal and flourishing style, this uh, elaborate proposal of this duel and sending it by messenger to Miraz. We saw Peter as the king, but Lewis doesn't leave it there. We don't have the image of Peter as king the way that we might have the image of Caesar on a coin. 
We don't have this flat symbol of power. We have Peter as king, but also Peter as boy, Peter as human, Peter as brother to Edmund, and Edmund as brother to Peter, where there's concern and and doubt and love and um, encouragement, things that are necessary for humans to be able to affect the will of God in our lives. That when God calls Peter, uh, when God calls us, when Aslan calls Peter, that allegory, uh, the call isn't one that removes our flesh and blood. In fact, it's one that bolsters it. it. It brings us into our fullest humanity rather than thin out our humanity into just blind obedience um, in the way of some sort of mechanical or rote uh, response to a stimulus. It's not as though Aslan touched a button and Peter was suddenly brave. Uh, Aslan summons Peter to bravery, but that bravery costs. It comes with emotional capital. It comes with a great deal of of feeling. Um, now, of course, Peter is able to manage that feeling and channel it into courage where he goes out to meet Miraz. Uh, he agrees to the fight, but it's an agreement that comes with all of the weight of his humanity. And the same is true at the beginning of 14, where Trumpkin uh, has already expressed his complete allegiance to Caspian. That he, of course, had some moments beforehand where he wavered and tottered and doubted. Uh, but he did have that famous line where he says, I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. He says, you've had my advice. Now's the time for taking orders. And so Trumpkin represents loyalty and allegiance to king, to the king, allegiance to the powers that rightly rule him. But it's not a flat allegiance. It's not a two-dimensional loyalty. It's a loyalty and a confidence that is also... Uh, uh, that it's a loyalty and a confidence that makes room for concern and sadness and um, uh, we and in weakness um, to that we have to reckon with. And so Trumpkin's words are our words that we might have all the confidence in the world and all the faith in the ultimate triumph of good, but that's a faith that has to work its way out minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. And so we have to walk by faith, not by sight. So our faith is what guides us, but it guides us one step at a time. We still have to walk forward. We still have to move. And so for Trumpkin and Truffle Honey here, I love this inner, this exchange of theirs before the great battle because we're reminded it's a great battle. It's a battle that has to be fought one stroke of the sword at a time, one battering of the shield at a time. Peter doesn't just get to be declared the victor because he agreed to it. He's being obedient, but that obedience has to measure itself out. It has to wage war, and that costs. It takes strength. It takes injury, and we'll see that as Peter and Mira's duel. Um, P- Peter is bruised. He gets beat up in the battle, and there are moments where he's not sure if he's going to win. He's not sure if he's going to live. Others aren't sure, and so Lewis allows for this story to be told not only in this fairy tale allegory of the ultimate triumph of good over evil, but an allegory that has flesh. It's a fairy tale that is incarnate. Um, These are heroes that get bruised and battered, and yet they still triumph because they triumph in the right and in the good, rather than the self-centered, greedy grabbing of Miraz's side. And so Trumpkin says, I wish Aslan had turned up before it came to this. 
Truffle Hunter says, so do I. And yet there's a turn where Truffle Hunter, Truffle Hunter says, but look behind you. And Trumpkin declares, crows and crockery. And listen to what Lewis says. Crows and crockery muttered the dwarf as soon as he had done so. What are they? Huge people. Beautiful people. Like gods and goddesses and giants. Hundreds and thousands of them closing in behind us. What are they? It's the dryads and hamadryads and sylvans, said Truffle Hunter. Aslan has awakened them. And this is a great, almost heavenly vision uh, that we are not alone. Truffle Hunter and Trumpkin lament the fact that Aslan has chosen in his sovereignty and in his good pleasure not to come at this moment and conquer the forces of evil like he did before. Remember, there's a precedent for that. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan intervenes and he conquers the White Witch. Peter and his armies had to face the battle, but it was Aslan that comes, on, that comes in and achieves the victory. Here, Aslan chooses uh, to allow Peter and Caspian and Edmund and Trumpkin and so on to face Miraz's armies. In faith, it's still Aslan's power, but it's a faith that they have to measure out. Remember last chapter where Peter said there are some things that Aslan wants us to do on our own. We don't do them in our own strength, but we certainly do them in our responsibility to obey and in our walking by faith. But what Truffle Hunter sees here is this great supernatural vision of all of these these, um, spirits of the Narnian world, the Dryads and the Hamadryads and the Sylvans, attending to the battle. They won't intervene either. The Dryads and the Sylvans aren't going to intervene and defeat Miraz for Peter, but they are there uh, in this company of community, this company of encouragement, of presence, and of promise that Aslan is with them. Aslan has wakened these spirits and sent them uh, to attend to this battle. And it's such a great reminder of that promise in Hebrews 12, where in uh, that first verse of Hebrews 12, that famous verse Uh, The writer says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. That's uh, such a parallel to what's happening here in Narnia where uh, the writer of Hebrews says, since we're surrounded, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us, those who have already walked through the valley of the shadow of death and have come out the other side and are now present with Christ, since we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, let us then lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us cast aside every doubt, cast aside every caution, every fear, every insecurity, every anxiety, and run with endurance the race that's set before us. Here, Truffle Hunter and Trumpkin this, get the same heavenly glimpse that they are not alone, that they are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that Aslan has awakened. Aslan is still on the move. He is still good. He is still the king. And though they still have to face the battle, Peter still has to go forward. They get to go forward surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses of those who have gone before and those that Aslan has awakened. And so do we. You and I still have to wake up every morning 
and put our shoes to the ground, put our feet to the ground rather, uh, and move forward in faith. We still have to do what our our task is. We have to walk in the calling that God has given us. But we walk in that calling surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We walk in that calling uh, surrounded by Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, surrounded by Moses and David, surrounded by Isaiah and Jeremiah, surrounded by Elijah and Elisha. We are surrounded by Abel. We are surrounded by Hannah. We are surrounded by Sarah. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And therefore, we get to lay aside every weight and sin and run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. That's the point. We are encouraged by the community of believers, the great church throughout all time and space. And we look to Jesus and we do the next thing. And that's what they have to do here. The Narnians are surrounded by the Dryads and Hamadryads and Sylvans, and they look to Aslan and they do the next thing. And so Peter goes out and for the next couple pages, we get this great battle sequence between Peter and Miraz um, where Lewis doesn't hold back. He requires Peter and Miraz to fight the fight of two human beings. They've they get bloodied and beat up. They, they have to wage war. And that's not a pretty and abstract and idealized thing. It's something that cuts and scars. Uh, Lewis ends the battle by saying it was most horrible and most magnificent. It was both. Because this is the triumph of Miraz's evil. This is how it's going to be manifest. This is how Aslan has measured it out. That Peter will fight Miraz and will conquer But that conquering is going to be magnificent and horrible. It's going to be both. And finally, Miraz, uh, Lewis says, a great shout arose from the old Narnians. Miraz was down, not struck by Peter, but face downwards, having tripped on a tussock. Peter stepped back, waiting for him to rise. And so it's in this moment that Lewis almost deceives us into thinking this is a mere pause in the battle where Miraz has uh, sort of undignified, uh, in an undignified way, tripped. But it turns out this is the moment in which uh, Glazelle and Sepespian will affect their own treachery. Uh, and uh, Glazelle will stab Miraz in the back. But there's an important, important point we see from Edmund before that, where Miraz has fallen, but rather than take advantage of it and strike him while he's down, Peter holds back and waits for him to rise. And Edmund says, oh, bother, 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 said Edmund to himself. Need he be as gentlemanly as all that? I suppose he must comes of being a knight and a high king. I suppose it is what Aslan would like. And so in that, that's such another human point too, where Edmund in his flesh would love for Peter to go ahead and get the victory, get him while he's down, take advantage. But the king in Edmund, the nobility in Edmund recognizes, ah, that would not be right. It would be effective. It would be convenient, but it wouldn't be right. And that goes all the way back to Nicobrick couple chapters ago, um, where there is this temptation to win um, and to uh, achieve victory by any means available, rather than by any means that's virtuous. And uh, Edmund recognizes that if Peter had done that, that would have been Peter achieving the victory by any means available, regardless of if it's right or wrong. And Edmund says, ah, it comes of being a knight and a high king. I guess he does have to be gentlemanly. I suppose it is what Aslan would like. And yes, we must fight the same way. Uh, We have to fight honorably. We have to fight 
by faith, we have to fight the way God would call us to fight, not the way that man would call us to fight. Doug Wilson says we have to fight like cavaliers and not like thugs. Um, so the fight is inevitable. We, it's, we must uh, wage war against the forces of evil, but we have to do them on God's terms, not on our own. And so Peter has to do them on Aslan's terms, not his own. And Edmund is rebuked a bit there. And it's a great just, uh, juxtaposition we have right back to back where we have Peter's honorable choice in battle versus Glazelle and Sepespian's dishonorable choices. That It's right in this moment that Glazelle stabs Miraz in the back while he's down and uh, I rather ironically start shouting out treachery, like projecting onto Peter and his forces the very treachery that they're guilty of, um, trying to uh, promulgate this lie from the very beginning. And that's where the whole war erupts, where both sides start fighting one another. Uh, and Lewis describes it this way. He says, uh, Peter calls everyone to arms, and Lewis says, if all three had set upon him, upon Peter, at once, he would never have spoken again. But, but Glazelle stopped to stab his own king dead where he lay. That's for your insult this morning, he whispered as the blade went home. And then full battle was joined, he says. So uh, it's it's interesting emphasis that Lewis adds by describing Glazelle's stabbing Miraz as stabbing his own king dead. Miraz is not the real king, but he was Glazelle's lord. He was Glazelle's king, and yet he stabs him in the back um, as, a, as a powerful image of ultimate treason and ultimate betrayal. What happens to Sepespian, on the other hand, is another story, uh, because it's in the very next sentence, Peter, uh, Lewis says, Peter swung to face Sepespian, slashed his legs from under him, and with the back cut of the same stroke, walloped off his head. Uh, so Sepespian is taken care of quite quickly, um, but Glazelle is the one. Remember, he's the one in the last chapter that uttered those two statements of the two brothers of the prodigal son, that we could be victorious and kingless. And by the way, when has he ever, when has he ever done anything right by us? That This is justified because of how uh, poorly we've been treated and we never get our way. Um, and so the battle's joined uh, and they fight. And yet Lewis does not provide uh, pages and pages and pages of warfare. We don't get this cinematic sequence. Um, the battle itself uh, comes rather quickly because it's at this point Lewis borrows a page from Shakespeare and has the war won by this great uprising of the natural world. Um, if you'll remember in Macbeth, the final scenes of Macbeth, you have Burnham Wood uh, coming to Dunsinane where uh, this great prophecy that's uttered comes true, um, where the forces against Macbeth come uh, camouflaged by the branches of Burnham Wood. And so it's as though Burnham Wood is on the move. And the forest itself takes over Macbeth's false reign. Like Miraz, Macbeth is a false king um, who establishes his authority and establishes his power um, through usurpation, through betrayal and treachery. And then that whole treason is upended by this movement of the natural world. And Lewis is going to embody that here as well, where the trees that Aslan has awakened advance upon Miraz and his armies and push them back to the bridge of Baruna, um, at which point they surrender. Um, and the rest of this chapter, too, there's a, there's a great deal of um, uh, emphasis that Lewis gives on the forces of good 
the forces of Aslan being the forces of liberation and freedom. It's Mira's side that seeks micromanagement and control and um, subjugation and oppression. It's Aslan's side that comes along and awakens the trees, awakens the river god. There's a, a scene when we cut to what Aslan's been up to where he tells Bacchus um, to awaken the river god by dismantling this bridge. Uh, the river god himself asks Aslan to loose my chains. He says, hail lord, loose my chains. And Aslan tells Bacchus uh, to dismantle this bridge. All this ivy comes and just dismantles the bridge. And it's because of that uh, choice of Aslan's that the retreating Telmarine army um, has nowhere to go. The, the bridge was their means of escape. It has since been demolished. And so they must uh, surrender at the fords of Baruna now. But Aslan's the one who awakens the natural world. Uh, it's the forces of good that um, bring fulfillment and bring thriving and bring health and restoration to all living things. It's the forces of evil that seek um, subjugation, sterility. Um, remember in The White Witch from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's her forces that turn all living things to stone. It's her power that has brought a hundred years of winter, um, that in her reign, much like in Miraz's, we don't have uh, celebration, we don't have joy, we don't have growth, we don't have living beauty, we have a column of power, we have top-down granite-solid chains of command. But it's Aslan who brings others into participation with his resurrecting power, in the line of which in the wardrobe, he invites other animals to go um, and uh, he awakens the statues and brings the animals into the fray of the battle, allows them to participate with himself. Us lions will lead the charge, he says. And now here with um, Miraz's forces being the ones that were micromanaging, industrializing, sort of uh, controlling and dominating all living things. It's now Aslan who, who, again, awakens the trees, awakens the river, and brings life into the towns, and therefore conquers that way. So it's a great way of showing this battle, where it's not just one army defeating another army, but it's an army made up of brave soldiers, Peter, Edmund, Caspian, and so on, Reepicheep, most brave, right? most valiant. But it's also made up of uh, the entire created order, that ultimate victory of the good involves ultimate victory of the good in all of the cosmos in all of create in all of creation it's not just the good of humans it's the good of all things conquering the evil of all things because the sin of miraz the the evil of miraz trickles down into the created order where now we have um we have images of uh Capti uh, captivity, images of sterility, images of bondage, and so on. So um, Miraz's reign has brought oppression and um, subjugation all the way down. So therefore, the reign of Peter, the reign of Caspian, needs to bring liberation all the way down. Well, hey, that reminds us of scripture, where Adam's fall was a fall that tainted all of the created order. In Romans 8, uh, all creation is groaning for the day of redemption. All of it has been tainted by Adam's sin. It's a broken world. It's not just a broken race of men. 
And therefore, the second Adam and his obedience and his good is going to bring ultimate redemption, not just to man, but to all creation as well. And this, Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Um, so this awakening of all things that Lewis pivots to, where we move away from the battlefield and we move to Aslan and Susan and Lucy, is one image. And it seems like two different stories, but they're intertwined and they harmonize in Lewis's view of how, how good conquers evil. That the trees awakened come and press the Telmarines back to the river, at which point they surrender. But it's a surrender that's only possible because Aslan has already done the work of redeeming and resurrecting uh, what has been bound and what has been um, captured into freedom. Just like in the same way, we must advance, the church must advance through redemptive history, fulfilling the Great Commission, but we can only do so because Christ has already gone ahead and done the work of freedom needed. And so it's a beautiful structure that Lewis uses in this chapter to show how uh, the forces of evil will be conquered. It's the bravery and the courage of the church marching on the freedom and redemption that Christ has already conquered and Christ has already affected. Same here, Peter and Caspian and Trumpkin, everybody press the Telmarines toward a surrender that's only possible because of the freedom that Aslan has brought to the towns and to the natural world. And we end the chapter with um, Lewis zooming in the focus on several key scenes of Aslan's awakening of all things, that he takes Susan and Lucy and they romp and dance. Um, he takes Bacchus with him and they lead this parade of joy and revelry. Uh, Lewis calls them the divine revelers, and he leads them on this crusade of awakening those who have been held captive by Miraz's tyranny. And there are just a couple of scenes he mentions. He, he generalizes it where he says wherever they went, in the little town of Baruna, it was the same. Most of the people fled, a few joined them. When they left the town, they were a larger and merrier company. So we get the, the process of what Aslan's doing, that he goes from place to place, heralding this great celebratory freedom. Most flee, but some remain and join, and those who join form a larger and merrier company. I, I can't think of a better description of the flourishing of the church throughout history. Most will flee. Most will deny. Most will reject. A few will join. And when they join, they form a larger and a merrier company. Now, this goes back to the line, the witch in the wardrobe, where it's the merriment of the animals celebrating the coming of spring against the hundred years of winter that the white witch can't stand. What's the meaning of all this waste and this gluttony? <laughs> What's what this self-indulgence and she turns them all to stone and here we get that same image that Aslan is bringing life and with that life comes joy and it's um, Miraz's people that uh, that can't handle that and seek to flee that. A couple of uh, scenes he gives us though are quite great. Lewis returns to this emphasis on education. Um, he he brought up what a good education ought to be at the beginning of this book with Dr. Cornelius and Caspian studying the stars together and hearing the great tales of old together. And Miraz can't stand that, so he banishes Caspian's nursemaid. He banishes Cornelius and so on. So here they enter into a school where Lewis says history was being taught. 
But he says the sort of history that was taught in Narnia under Miraz's rule was duller than the truest history you've ever read, and less true than the most exciting adventure story. So again, Miraz's reign is prosaic. It is dull. It is uninteresting compared with the greatness of the truth. In this sentence, he uh, he equates dullness with uh, less true. And he equates truth with most exciting. So the history under Miraz was duller than the truest history and less true than the most exciting adventure. So it's the truth that's the most exciting. It's falsehood that is dull. Um, and he goes into the classroom where... <laughs> There's this teacher that's droning on and uh, this student is trying to get her attention that there's a lion outside and the teacher's just giving out marks and and reprimanding her and so on. And he says, um, wild people such that she turns and sees wild people such as she had never imagined. And that phrase is great because that's part of the problem. She had never imagined. This is an imaginationless educational system. Therefore, when the truth comes back, parading in they don't have eyes to see this uh, lewis will do this again in the voyage of the dawn treader with eustace uh, where he'll say eustace had no idea what a dragon was or a dragon's den or any of the pitfalls there because he didn't read the right books that the books he read were filled with all sorts of facts and and uh, details about aqueducts and so on but they were pretty scarce on dragons and so here again um, lewis has a has a deep and a compassionate commitment toward how we educate our children. And it cannot be this dull industrial education that boils everything down to mere facts. Uh, it has to be filled with the full wildness of the truth and nothing less. So Aslan approaches the student, this girl, Gwendolyn, and brings her along with him. Um, Aslan says, you'll stay with us, sweetheart. And she says, oh, may I? Yes, please. Uh, and they go from town to town liberating um, all of those who have been held in, not the bondage of stone, like the White Witch, but the bondage of um, uh, inadequate education, the bondage of falsehood, the bondage of um, reductionism, boiling everything down to mere matter and mere facts and mere tedious details. But there's a great line that we see from Aslan when he goes to awaken. He ultimately awakens and brings with him what turns out to be Caspian's old nursemaid, that she's sick and ill, and, and Aslan awakens her and brings her with him. But there's this great line he has here that connects to um, a very important thought for Lewis. He says this, At a little town halfway to Beaver's Dam, where two rivers met, they came to another school where a tired-looking girl was teaching arithmetic to a number of boys who looked very like pigs. She looked out of the window and saw the divine revelers singing up the street, and a stab of joy went through her heart. Aslan stopped right under the window and looked up at her. And so he's going from school to school, town to town, place to place, inviting and bringing those who would come to come into the greater adventure. And he comes to this tired-looking teacher teaching math to a bunch of students who aren't, who don't care. They don't see it. They don't um, have a heart for true education. They don't have a heart for the truth and the goodness and the beauty of things. And when the divine revelers sing up the street, Lewis says, a stab of joy 
went through her heart. Now that's a powerful phrase because we see it elsewhere in Lewis's work and it becomes a very famous description of his to describe this concept of sin-sucked, this stab of joy that he describes in Surprised by Joy. Very famous um, part of Lewis's project where the stab of joy is his phrase for that deep, uh, that deep-seated longing that all human beings have for ultimate happiness and satisfaction. And it's a satisfaction that cannot be found in anything that is in this world. In Mere Christianity, Lewis uh, argues that very famous quote from that work where he says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world will satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And so Lewis is very tuned to the nature of human desire, human longing, this wistful ache we have for that which nothing in this world will satisfy that Lewis believed was a holdover of our uh, placement in Eden, that we were made for eternal joy. We were designed for ultimate happiness. And because of the fall, we are now restricted from that. We are now fallen from that. Yet the desire remains. It's it's part and parcel to being made in the image of God, that we have this deep-seated aching and longing to be reunited with our God, to be reunited with our maker, to be reunited with each other. And yet because of our sin, we have this, um, this shattered image, this fractured um, capacity, but still the longing remains. And so Lewis said there was, there are moments in life, there are, um, he, in Surprised by Joy, he talks about his brother's toy garden that he would look at and experience this, this stab of joy, this, this deep longing for um, transcendent beauty, and then it would pass. Or when he would hear um, the music of Wagner, or when he would read the Norse myths, uh, he said he would have this deep wistful aching awakened for a moment and it was like a stab of joy so here now in narnia when the divine revelers sing up the street this woman experiences a stab of joy right through her heart and there's aslan right out her, outside her window calling to her so that moment encapsulates so much of what lewis was after with this um, this longing and this joy. He talks about it until we have faces. He talks about it in Surprised by Joy that so much of what he writes about taps into this desire of man for ultimate joy, ultimate happiness that now in this world we only see in part. Um, it's like in uh, Romans where now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. It's this promise of ultimate joy, but now we only see it piecemeal. We see it like light through a stained glass window. We see splintered glimpses of paradise now. But what they do is awaken within us a longing and a desire for ultimate paradise as a way of reorienting our hearts back toward the path that will lead to the fullness of joy. And so here this lady is awakened to the reality of Aslan right at her window by this stab of joy in her heart. And of course, you and I have that same opportunity with every pleasure, with every desire, with every glimpse of paradise we get now. It is an opportunity for us to be reoriented, to be uh, redirected back toward that which will ultimately satisfy. 
And so finally we get up to uh, this little old woman, Caspian's nursemaid, that told him the great fairy tales, the great tales of Aslan. And she has been in exile all these many years. And Aslan approaches her and says, um, there's a child at the door. Uh, he says, why are you crying, my love? And the child directs him to her auntie. She says, auntie's very ill. She's going to die. And Aslan goes through the cottage. And uh, the nursemaid recognizes him because, of course, she's told the stories of Aslan to Caspian. She's thought about this all of her life. And so now she turns and says, oh, Aslan, I knew it was true. I've been waiting for this all my life. Have you come to take me away? And Aslan responds, yes, dearest, but not the long journey yet. And I just think this is one of the most touching moments in all the Chronicles. Uh, where you have this woman on her deathbed, and she sees Aslan face to face, and she says, Oh, Aslan, I knew it was true. I've been waiting for this all my life. And I just think, what a great hope for you and me when we are on our deathbeds. That we might, we might turn to see the face of Christ and say, Oh, Jesus, I knew it was true. I've been waiting for this all my life. Have you come to take me away to the long journey, that great journey which we'll see at the very end of the last battle, further up and further in, um, this nursemaid sees Aslan face to face and says, I knew it was true. I knew it was true. All the stories of you were true. And so what a great encouragement to our faith now, as you and I tell the great stories of Jesus to our children. We tell them to each other. Know that one day we will see him face to face, and we will say, oh, I knew it was true. I've been waiting for this all my life. And so Aslan takes her with him, and he tells Bacchus to give her a drink from a pitcher in the cottage. And Lewis says, what was in it now was not water, but the richest wine, red as red currant jelly, smooth as oil, strong as beef, warming as tea, cool as dew. So thank you for joining uh, this week as we looked at chapter 14. Join us next time, next time as we conclude Prince Caspian with the final chapter, chapter 15, Aslan Makes a Door in the Air.